when I listen to podcast, I can be sure that I'm going to discover some kind of buried treasure, something that I didn't know about Poland, or Polish people, or Polish culture, or Polish traditions. And not just in Poland, but in countries all over the world, in Canada, in India. I mean, who knew? Thank you, Polkast. I just can't wait for the next episode. I feel like, uh, you know, relaxing. I tune in to Polcast. <laughs> Poland. Uh, things that come to mind. Not a whole lot. No. <laughs> Poland? Probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausages. No, I don't know anything about that country. Poland? Sausages. <laughs> Pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Welcome to Polcast. Hi, this is Małgorzata Bonikowska, and you're listening to episode 65 of Polcast, recorded and produced in Toronto. I want to thank you so much for all the kind words and great comments I got from you, some from afar like the Philippines, India, and Saudi Arabia. I'm glad that you enjoyed my first solo episode. There will be many more, I promise. And I'm always happy to hear your comments and suggestions. July the 1st is Canada Day, the 162nd birthday of this amazing country to which I came a long time ago and chose it as the place where I really want to live. And I've never regretted that decision. A million things, including this podcast, would not have happened if I'd returned to Poland after my one and then two-year academic exchange. It's quite a story. Well, maybe some other time. Now, I just want to say to our listeners from over 120 countries, if there is one country that has managed to treat its people with dignity and accept them for who they are, it's one and only Canada. So, come to visit us and see for yourselves. And to all of us from around 200 national backgrounds who constitute this wonderful, diverse Canadian family, happy Canada Day. So, what have I prepared for you for episode 65? Well, let's see. Do you remember the mysterious story of a train full of gold buried by the Nazis in Polish Silesia? In episode 30, we featured Wanda Kościa, a London-based Polish-born director, producer, and award-winning documentary filmmaker, and her BBC film Hunting the Nazi Gold Train. I also had a great pleasure to organize and host the screening of her great documentary film about the Warsaw Uprising. Wanda Kościa acted as our podcast interviewer before, in episode 58, when she spoke to Neil Acherson. Her interview for podcast today is with Piotr Szkopiak, also based in Britain, writer, director, born in England, the son of Polish refugees from the Second World War. His grandfather, Wojciech Stanisław Wojciech, was brutally murdered along with 22,000 Polish officers by the Soviets in the forests of Katyn in 1940. His most recent film, The Last Witness, talks about this monumental massacre, in itself a tragedy, but also about another tragic aspect of it, the cover-up by the Allies who didn't want to reveal the Soviet guilt, ascribing it to the Germans. The film also shows the fate of Polish refugees after World War II who lived for years in displaced persons' camps in Britain, unable to return to their motherland controlled by the Communist Soviet Union after the war, and unable to openly talk about why they had to stay in Britain and what had happened. Who knows that in 1939 the Soviets invaded Poland in alliance with Nazi Germany? Germany would not have invaded Poland if it hadn't been in agreement with the Russians. 
who knows that over a million Poles were deported to Siberia, where hundreds of thousands died of starvation, disease, and exhaustion? Who knows about the mass killings in the Russian forests? Who knows about the silence and lies post-World War II? Piotr Kopiak's Last Witness has been extremely successful at festivals around the world. 25 award wins, two awards of excellence, nine nominations, and five official selections. It has been shown in Britain, Poland, and the U.S. How many? To date, over 4,000 bodies. But there are three times that's still missing. Mostly officers, reservists, lawyers, teachers, priests. Stalin knew these people would never capitulate to Soviet rule. And Poles know all about being occupied by foreign powers, and these were the best of my country. They would fight for their freedom with everything they had. Stalin murdered them so Poland could never again rise from the ashes. The British, they knew about this? Of course they did. The British and Americans just wanted the whole affair to go away. They needed the Red Army to keep fighting the Germans. They feared Stalin would make peace with Hitler. Now Stalin has half of Europe under his boot and they can do nothing. And my, my country is occupied. And no criticism of Stalin is tolerated. I don't understand what is happening. Earlier, our train stopped at the siding. We were met by Soviet guards and ordered to disembark. There is a large forest here. We have been loaded into black prison vans. I have to stop riding now. Congratulations. Thank you. How many years? I saw Paul's play in 1995. Who is Paul? Uh, Paul is Paul Shamboski, my co-writer, who I know from school. I wrote the first draft of the script in 2001. I started working with Carol, the producer, in 2011, and I shot the film in 2016. That's so, one long journey. <laughs> so that's a long journey. <laughs> <laughs> because when we met, you were just looking for some archive footage. At that point, I was trying to produce the film myself. So I was looking for locations. I was... Uh, looking at all the detail and just because I was writing as a director I was also thinking how can I also make this film as well how possible is it to make so when we met I was looking into the Nazi propaganda footage yeah. that they shot uh, during the during the uncovering of the graves so that's in the film now this is a film about cutting but without mentioning cutting I didn't want this film to be a film about the Katyn massacre, a heavy drama about the Katyn massacre. I structured the film as a thriller rather than a drama because I wanted to engage an audience rather than to preach to an audience about, uh, about a historical event. So maybe without doing any spoilers, if you could just say what the film consists of. Yeah. So the film takes place in Bristol in England in 1947. And it is about a young journalist who is looking for that big story that's going to make his career and he comes across an Eastern European refugee and this is a Russian who is pretending to be a Pole and, his, and he gets interested in this and he wants to find out why this Russian is pretending to be a Pole and everything after that, well, will be a spoiler. <laughs> All right, but it's very evocative of our parents' um, generation who came here after the war and weren't able to go back to Poland. Some didn't want to, some weren't able to. Others didn't have a place to go to because Poland was by then in a different location, having moved west. You evoke um, an atmosphere of, of those early years. And that's part of the film. It is, is a way of telling that story, the, the generation that stayed here, the Poles that remained in the UK after the war. And so that's why it's a Polish story, but it's also a British story. It's British history as much as it is Polish history, because in the general population, not many people actually know why the Poles stayed. They were not economic migrants. They were political refugees. Because Poland was given away to the Soviet Union, they couldn't go home. In my mum's case, this is 
she's not going to go back to the country that is occupied by people who deported her to Siberia and left her for dead. And that was the story of most of the Poles in England after the war. And so going back to Poland, they were regarded as enemies of state. They were regarded as traitors. So they were in limbo. And this is what the film is ultimately about. It's not so much about the Katyn massacre and the details of that massacre, but how that affected the Poles that stayed in the UK after the war. And it's their unhappy circumstances because then they haven't settled yet. There's a resettlement act, but... They're living, a lot of them are living in camps, which both of us remember carried on for quite a long time. Yeah, well, I, I had relatives that stayed, that were still living in those displaced persons camps in the 70s. These were all Poles that thought at some point they would go back to Poland. And that never happened. And again, in my mum's case, you know, they got, she got married, she had children, but all that, the first, those first, few years, those first few decades really, the Poles were still thinking that at some point they might go home. But they never did. And that's the tragedy of it. Their stories weren't believed. That was part of the problem as well for them. Well, politically, they were an uncomfortable truth because the British authorities didn't want people asking questions about the Poles because they'd then have to explain what had happened. And this was the political problem, really, because the the Poles had fought alongside the British um, to go home. But at the end of the war, Poland wasn't liberated yet. As for, for everybody else, the war was over. For the Poles, the war wasn't over yet. Mm. But unfortunately, they couldn't talk about that because the official line of, of the UK government was that Soviets were allies and were good guys, and there was no reason why the Poles couldn't go home. How do you tell the story of the Katyn massacre? It's very difficult. So when I saw Schindler's List and I heard Steven Spielberg say that he had the same problem in that how could he tell the story of the Holocaust? You can't do that. It's, it's too big a story. But he can tell the story of, of one man. And the backdrop is this huge event. And I found that's exactly what I was trying to do. I'm concentrating on one man but the backdrop is this huge event and uh, and that event then opens up the politics and the history and the personal and the and the personal stories of these poles that uh, that couldn't go home and the, and your audience who who is this film for who actually has seen it the audience i was aiming for was an audience that knows absolutely nothing about polish history nothing about the Katyn massacre. I wanted to get an, engage an audience that enjoys movies, that likes World War II drama, that likes conspiracy thrillers, you know, that likes genre uh, films. Now, if they go along to that and if they enjoy it as a murder mystery and they enjoy it as a thriller, but they also learn something, well, that's a bonus. But it's not intended as a lecture. Uh, you worked with a writer who had done impeccable research. There is documentary evidence on which your film is based. There's, there's, for a start, Ambassador O'Malley's report, which was kept secret for many decades, but is a foundation of some of the things that are said in the film. Yeah, and we were, we were very keen to make sure that anything that was based in reality was true. So that was heavily researched. Paul did that research, and he likes doing that research. But for instance, that report, the O'Malley report, you can go and read in the, in the archives uh, in Kew Gardens. You can actually read that report on the internet. On the evidence that we have, it is difficult to escape from the presumption of Russian guilt. How, if Russian crime is established, can we expect Poles to live amicably side by side with Russians for generations to come? This document is explosive. If it was to fall into unauthorized hands, the reaction on our relations with Russia would be serious. In handling the publicity side of the Katyn affair, 
We have been constrained by the urgent need for cordial relations with the Soviet government to appear to appraise the evidence with more hesitation and lenience than we should do in forming a common sense judgment. We have, in fact, perforce, used the good name of England like the murderers use the little conifers to cover up a massacre. You know, everything that we, that we talk about that is relevant to real events, we were very uh, careful to make sure that that was referenced and that we could substantiate those. Everything, obviously, when you're dealing with a fictional film, you are fictionalizing characters, you're fictionalizing situations, but they should be steeped in the truth. You know, we've all seen those films where quite clearly they just played with the truth a little bit too much and then it becomes a nonsense. Because what's crucial is that your key person, the, pers the, the last witness, is in fact a real person. He is, absolutely. You know, the, the Russian witness who did um, show the Germans where the graves were uh, and uh, then left the Soviet Union when the Soviets uh, recaptured the area. He is a real character. And in the Katyn Museum in Warsaw, there is a plaque to him and it tells you ultimately who he is and that he was a real character. My name is Ivan Krivozertsev. My home is near Smolensk, small town, Novibritoki. I was there when they first come. People say they were fiends. But my friend Kisilev, he saw their four-corner heart. They were all Polish. In forests, Bolsheviks tied their hands behind backs, a rope around the neck. So you strangle if you move. They put them zimli to ground and they put guns to back of the neck one after another bodies fall into the pit to ground. And guns loaded for the next group over and over again until drop finish. And it's his fate that is the inspiration of, of your film. Yeah, and Paul, in a way, played the journalist because he this all happened in Bristol and Paul was living in Bristol and he found out about this this uh, witness and he was interested in the same way the journalist was inter in our film is interested. And so he tried to find out everything he could about it. And uh, that is that was the starting point for us. And, and the last witness is played by a very renowned, one of the most famous Polish actors who played Wałęsa. Robert Wienczkiewicz, who is probably the leading cinema actor in Poland, I would think. Very honoured to have him play the part. But what was interesting is when we first sent the script to him, I th sent the script with, with, with the hope that he'd play the Polish colonel, which is one of the lead characters in the film. 
but he came back to us and said he's not interested in playing the colonel because he's not a colonel. He's more a he's more a peasant, and he wants he he's more interested in playing the last witness. At that point, you know, I didn't think he would want to play the witness because it's a Russian character. But then now, when I think about it, it's inspired really because obviously the last witness is actually the main character. The film is called The Last Witness, and Robert wanted to play the main character, so it makes total sense. How has your audience reacted? And is it predominantly a Polish audience, or have you had non-Poles see it? The audience I was going for was an English audience, an English and American audience, an audience that, that didn't know about these events. So the fact that the Polish audience was so interested in it surprised me a little bit because I thought, well, they know about all this, so why would they be interested? They don't. <laughs> but uh, in, what I found is that absolutely they don't. And uh, a, a lot of the audience, especially a younger audience, aren't aware of this. Even Robert Bienczkiewicz came to, he desperately wanted to meet my mum when we were filming because he didn't know about the displaced persons camps. He didn't know um, what had happened to the Poles here after the war. So he was interested. Your film was shown for months in Poland, Polish cinemas, yeah? Yeah. It, so, so it had quite a big audience. And how it was received in Poland, is there a difference between that and how it's received here? Because I understand you go to lots of screenings and engage in conversations with the audience. Is there a difference? So in Poland, I think the way it was sold to the audience was as a film about Katyn, which was not my intention. So I think the expectation of a lot of the audience in Poland was that they were going to see a film much more to do with the massacre and the details behind it and the history of that. Whereas, as I'm saying, it's the, the massacre is more in the background and we're talking about the political kind of machinations surrounding it. But then the reaction has been very positive since What about then. press coverage in Poland? Did you get any press coverage? There wasn't a lot of promotion. In Poland, mm. I I did promotion on the day of the release, but it wasn't enough from my point of view. I was available for more, but I, really it wasn't utilised. It's a bigger issue because the problem is yeah, again I don't want to sound negative mm. about it because uh, I think it's been very successful in Poland, but my issue with it is that it had to get past this promotional issue, which which is that it was sold as a film about Katyn. In Poland, they don't make films like this. So it was a film that they didn't really know what to do with because it's an English film in the English language about a very Polish subject. And it's also a genre film, which in Poland, the Polish films in most cases are not genre films. They're all dramas. And the distributor told me this. It was regarded as a Polish film, but it wasn't a Polish film. So straight away, just by me saying that, you know, people are, I'm confused. So, so your audience is going to be confused. So if all they've got to go on really is a write-up and a poster, then it's very difficult for them to know to what, what, to what, it, what to expect. Of course, there's a trailer and so on. But because even the trailer was geared towards uh, the massacre, you know, I just felt, I felt it was missold. Yeah. But here in the UK, you've had... To- a lot of screenings. Yeah, we've had 25 screenings in 16 independent cinemas. And I've good. been to each one and I've done a Q&A after the screenings and those have been fascinating because you get that, that reaction immediately. Everybody stays for the Q&As. When I started, the balance was more Polish than English. Towards the end, pretty much all my audiences have been English. And so each Q&A and each reaction has been different, but in a good way. Um, and in the end, I am reaching the audience I wanted to reach, which is that English audience that, that if they didn't know about it, they're learning something new. If they did know about it, they can finally, there's, there's a film that talks about it and puts it out there. And the Polish audience, were they more receptive than the Poles in Poland? Yeah, very much so, because, because obviously it's, it's, their it's their story. Yeah. So finally, mm-hmm. as a lot have said, finally someone's told that story because it's something that has not been you know, in in the mainstream media. And certainly, I don't know of any feature film that has dealt with the Katyn massacre in the way I have. And obviously, also trying to engage an audience so that if they are interested in that story, they can then take that further. They can read up about it. They can look on the internet. They can read the books because those books are, are out there now. And you hit the festival trail with a vengeance. 
And we've been successful. And the, the point here is, is not so much about winning awards for me. It's about finding that audience. And that's what's important. So a festival audience is another audience for the film. Because as a filmmaker, I've, I've spent 15 years making this film. I want people to see it. I don't want to put it in a drawer or show it to my family and that's it. This, this is a film I wanted to have people see because I think it's, uh, it's in the, the subject I'm dealing with is important. It's an independent production. It costs $3 million. $3 million, yes. So it's low budget. Yes. <laughs> in Hollywood terms, that's almost that's a low budget. Film. No budget. But it's still $3 million. Yeah. So it's still, but obviously, you know, we're dealing with a, a period film set in 1947. Everything has to be period. So pretty much a, a lot of that money had to, had to go on screen to, to create that world. But it's also interesting, your, um, your producer, because you started producing yourself and at some point you hooked up with a producer and yeah. the producer has no Polish connection none and that, that's what was really interesting for me as well in that Carol is of West Indian background and she's the Windrush generation ultimately but so like us you know, born here of immigrant parents so what drew her to the film is, is the immigrant story so she was interested in how this event affected the Polish story but also because she was working in the foreign office and she didn't know anything about this. You know, like every immigrant community has a, a painful story back home. Yeah, and that's the, and that's, and that's the key. Every, you know, everyone has that story why they're here, be it economic, be it political. In, in, a, in the Poles case, it's a huge uh, political story because, it, it, because Poland was given away to the Soviet Union and they couldn't go home. So that is something they lived with uh, for 50 years until the Soviets finally came clean about the Katyn massacre and what happened to the Poles. But by that point, you know, they obviously settled here and created a life here. And the Poland that they left before the war didn't exist anymore. Do we dwell too much on our past? I don't think you can dwell too much on your past. I think the problem comes where you cherry pick the past or you cherry pick politics and you don't know the whole story. I think a lot of people now have opinions based on either untruths or very little history or very little knowledge. And I think that's the problem. I think, you know, if you're going to have an opinion, unfortunately, you're going to have to substantiate that opinion. And if you don't, I don't think you have, you have the, the right to have that opinion. It should be researched it should be validated before you open your mouth and i think that's the problem because people are not documenting it properly and you know leaving out uncomfortable truths and manipulating history for their own goals and that has to be fought against so i think as as filmmakers as documentarians we need to be very thorough to be objective and not to be polarizing or uh, political in any way we should be non-political and this is what I tried to do with the film in that this is a non-political film I've tried to tell or show the truth of the situation after the war and why the Poles were here why things happened the way they did because of this this event I have a story I don't want to hear it British government is covering up the murder of over 15,000 Polish officers and men by the Soviets in 1940. They sold out a whole nation, their own allies, a country they went to war to protect. And it doesn't end there. Yesterday evening, the last witness to that massacre was murdered right here in Bristol. You certainly have a vivid imagination. What did they say to you, Frank? I beg your pardon? That you lose your job? Lose the paper? Yeah. Be disgraced? And it's your patriotic duty not to print this? If you don't leave right now, I'll have you thrown out. Keep your money. 
I'll resign. Please go to our website, mypodcast.com, to learn more about this powerful film, which I have seen three times and keep wanting to go back to it, about its director, as well as the historical events that it is based on, the Katyn Massacre. There, you can also see the trailer and find out where you can actually watch The Last Witness. Is it possible that very soon we may not be able to hear those clanking sounds or be able to touch coins or bills of what is known as fiat currencies that the cabaret stars sing about? Thomas Jankowski is an expert in cryptocurrencies with the Canadian company CoinSquare. Tomek, wherever you go, you constantly hear about things like Bitcoin, a blockchain. This is something that lots of people talk about. I guess not that many people understand it, although apparently Bank of Canada did a survey that the awareness of this has risen drastically from, I think, 65% to almost 85%, which means 85% of Canadians know what Bitcoin is or blockchain technology is. But we're talking not only to Canadians. People who listen to podcasts are spread all over the world. And you're an expert. (laughs) So, (laughs) So I want you to tell us where it all came from, what it's all about, and why we should be concerned or happy. A couple of things on the origins of uh, blockchain. The technology itself uh, harks back to, uh, I believe, 2009 or so, even though it actually borrows quite a bit from uh, works of even earlier cryptographers. Thinking about, you know, how do we assure that information does not change, that information is not as easily hackable as it was uh, back at the uh, earlier days of the Internet. So we're talking information. We're not talking money now. No, 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 no. Uh, Money is just something that happened very recently. But it was all about information initially. You know, how do we protect information that's passing from you to me without necessarily using a third party to tell us that, yes, I've authenticated you, you are Margaret, I've authenticated you, you are Tomek, and you know what, and... uh, Um, You know, I'm this uh, ivory tower institution, potentially a government or some other entity that says, you know, you two have been verified. So people have been, you know, looking for a way to ensure that information can happen between two parties directly. And both of them will be happy about verification of identity, verification of trust or operating in a trustless way. So you don't trust me. I don't trust you. But what occurs between us can still happen in a valid way. And uh, in 2009 is when, you know, Bitcoin is famously created. The now infamous Satoshi Nakamoto, um, you know, came up with this idea that, hey, listen, you know, why don't we create a digital currency? Uh, Because it's a fantastic application of this new technology called blockchain. And it should allow us to do all kinds of really cool and crazy things in the world. Um, like the exchange of value, like, you know, transactions happening uh, in next to no time between parties anywhere, like the idea of not needing ever again a middleman in any type of a transaction. I mean, then, you know, Bitcoin happened, kind of sat dormant for a while. You know, we all know um, the example of the guy who paid for pizza with the equivalent of something like 21 billion in, in Bitcoin in like early days of Bitcoin. Um, And then nowadays, you know, we have, I think by my last count was roughly around 1400 different cryptocurrencies. And that's just cryptocurrencies because, you know, like I said, cryptocurrencies are just one application of blockchain. So what are the other ones? What actually excites people, you know, mostly about blockchain is the idea behind validation of trust. So uh, where it's actually happening a lot more so than in the world of finance, um, it's happening in the world of law. 
Um, we have, you know, examples of companies storing um, uh, intellectual property um, uh, metrics and markers on blockchain so they cannot be rewritten again. IBM that agreed to put its entire supply chain on blockchain so that you have these crates that travel all over the world and all of these like tankers. Well, you cannot run, you cannot run double books anymore. Once it's scanned and it's written on blockchain, you cannot change it. The very nature of blockchain prevents changes to any records. And uh, another example that you know I think would be even in, you know more interesting to humanists out there is blockchain is really helping with the idea of fighting censorship um, all over the world. So the idea of rewriting history is no you know is not a strange phenomenon to us Poles. Now you have the ability to actually write something, you know, whether it is podcast or a piece of literature or that, uh, you know, recent translation of Pantadeus that you were talking about on your last podcast, and it stays as it is. Maybe in a hundred years or in a thousand years, a different regime comes along that says, let's wipe the entirety of the 22nd century. And they cannot, they cannot, they can only write amendments, but you can always see what the origin um, was. So blockchain is really about security, about trust, about things being authentic. Yeah, yeah. Basically ensuring there is no middleman. Um, you know, everybody in the network says, I've seen you do something and they have their own private copy of everything that happened. So if you send me $2 tomorrow on, on, on the Bitcoin uh, blockchain, um, basically the other 20 something million people will see that, oh, yeah, OK. And transaction occurred between these two parties. That's what it was. And we have seen it. And now every single block until the end of time will consist that transaction we just did until end of time. Okay, now let's talk about money now, right? You are a chief digital and growth officer at this company called CoinSquare. It's Canadian owned. It's, um, it has an office in downtown Toronto. And it actually says that it's extremely safe and extremely reliable and extremely transparent. What do you guys do? CoinSquare is, uh, is essentially a cryptocurrency exchange, um, which is basically a place you go and exchange your fiat currency, like Canadian dollars, US dollars, euro, into um, any one of currencies that uh, the exchange supports. Um, it's, of course, just one of the, its many business lines. We also do um, uh, wealth management. Um, we do API-based products uh, for companies who want to use uh, Bitcoin payments in a B2B manner. Um, but for the time being, its primary um, you know, operation, primary purpose is to basically allow someone like yourself to own a bit of Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, whatever you'd like. Okay, why would I want to own Bitcoin? I know that in 2017, it went down like crazy. It's up again. But why would anybody in the world want to have something that they cannot touch that is neither a bill or, or a coin? It's something completely invisible, something electronic, something virtual. What's the whole appeal of this? This is actually a very complex question, so I'll try to um, answer in parts. But first and foremost, um, you know, people who have been watching the evolution of money um, worldwide are in agreement that fiat money, what you and I agree to be, you know, tender and what the bank tells us, um, is not that different from Bitcoin anymore. You know, as we know, um, you know, the Feds uh, have decoupled um, U.S. dollar from the gold standard quite some time ago. Um, and it is the belief of many that, you know, today, just under 30 percent of all currency in the world has some sort of a peg to a to a security. Um, whereas the rest of us, the other 70 percent, it's just virtual money anyways. So, you know, you, you know, your savings, your RSPs, your TFSIs, whatever. Um, it says that you have this and this much, but, you know, it's it's just because we all believe that that's the case. But by and large, that's not very true. Canada is very you know special because we have a very stable uh, financial system. But if you look at the likes of Turkey or Venezuela or, you know, any one of these places that, you know, where they also believed their money to be good. And then we know what happened. Right. Um, crazy inflation and whatnot, you know. Um, you know, I've recently come back from Africa where there was a, you know, one trillion Zimbabwe dollars bill that once upon a time couldn't buy you a loaf of bread. Um, you know, whereas, you know, a lot of people are, you know, are of the belief that, you know, these, these systems are untenable in the long term. 
And should a really big recession occur and something happen to the financial system, these new currencies, like Bitcoin, like many others, uh, could offer an interesting alternative. So that's reason number one. Reason number two is, um, you know, a lot of people are actually believing in this, especially in the long term value of digital currencies, much more so than 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 you or even me, who actually is a believer. But uh, you know, there are some people who are investing like crazy into this. Um, some huge institutions and. You know, the amount of um, Fortune 500 companies that have said one thing two years ago and are now enabling payments in crypto is staggering. You know, you have Microsoft, you have Dell, you have IBM, um, all offering, you know, payments uh, with crypto and also heavily investing in this technology. So there's a lot of people that believe that basically, you know, owning a Bitcoin or something similar um, could pay off quite heftily in the long term. And then the third piece really here is, you know, this is a, this is not an evolution in many ways. In many ways, this is a revolution. This does offer an interesting way out of the establishment. You know, there is a lot of anti-establishment momentum right now, but there's also, you know, um, a belief that, you know what, why should I be you know, cutting anything to the middleman, whether the middleman is, you know, is uh, a government institution um, like the Fed in the US or whether, you know, let's say you and I want to uh, exchange a good and, you know, you know, we can either pay a cut to Kijiji, to Facebook, to Amazon or to someone else, or we can do the same thing on Bitcoin and all of us keep the same, you know, keep everything to ourselves. These transactions can happen very quickly. And in some cases, you know, like when you have people using uh, crypto for remittance. So if you're, you know, sending money to your family in Poland, or if we have, let's say, seasonal workers in Canada uh, work here and then send their uh, hard-earned money back home, whether it be Philippines or India or some other place, um, you know, they oftentimes pay incredible, crazy fees to the likes of Western Union. And really, on blockchain, you can do all of this yourself in a matter of seconds for next to no fee. I mean, it looks like it's amazing, fantastic. We don't pay any extra fees. But is it safe? The actual transmittance of crypto from one place to another or from one wallet to another digital wallet is incredibly safe and incredibly simple. The setup to actually have this you know, uh, app on your phone or on your computer when you do it the very first time takes a, you know, takes a bit um, of finicking. You know, it's not as easy as, you know, using your regular cash, um, but it's incredibly safe and it happens instantly. And, and it leaves a trail that's much more um, auditable than anything else in the financial system. Uh, many people, you know, believe that uh, you know when you do something in Bitcoin, it's anonymous, whatever. It's not. It's actually incredibly auditable. There's only a couple of cryptocurrencies that have been designed with privacy in mind, which offer uh, protection from tracking, but everything else is trackable. But your company says that it um, it is one of the few in the world that empowers you to fund and withdraw with fiat cash, such as Canadian dollars, euros, and Swiss francs. So if I do some sort of trading or sending money through your CoinSquare company, then somebody can withdraw that money in those three currencies or more currencies? So here's what happens. You register on CoinSquare or on any other one of the exchanges, and let's say you send in your fiat from your bank. So pretend you have an account at CIBC. Um, you know, you send a e-money transfer to CoinSquare's account, and then it shows up as, once again, you know, let's say a thousand Canadian dollars in your CoinSquare account. Now you can purchase, uh, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum with it. So let's pretend you, uh, you purchase Ethereum. You will probably get close to four Ethereum, you know, 3.795, doesn't matter. And now you decide what to do with it. Now you have this Ethereum wallet with this like crazy address, now you can send it to anyone. The, the, the option to send Ethereum to someone is super simple. And imagine that, you know, you know, taking you back a bit, if you're actually in your CIBC account, and I told you right now, listen, I want you to send $500 from your CIBC account to my friend in India and another $500 to my friend in Poland. It would probably take you a couple of weeks or days to figure out how to do it. You'll probably have to pay some fees. Um, whereas with this, you know, like 3.7 Ethereum that you just got, you simply say, okay, my friend in Poland, my friend in India, you know, like, you know, give me your Ethereum addresses. They give you this address, they send it to you. 
Um, you just copy and paste it and the money is sent. And it usually will take, you know, I use the example of Ethereum. It will probably take about three minutes for the money to be there. And then their own Ethereum wallets will show, you know, 3.7 of Ethereum in their wallets. Now they have to go to their local exchange if they do want to exchange the money um, to actually exchange it back to something like the India rupees or the Polish water. Um, and, you know, CoinSquare also operates a branch uh, in Europe and, you know, and I think it's accessible right now in um, 15 countries or so. So technically a Polish person can open up an account on CoinSquare um, as well and uh, withdraw their money there or they can use a Polish uh, exchange um, that has like, you know, Polish language, whatever, like BitPay or some, something else. Then they, they withdraw the 3.7 Ethereum into Polish Lotte in their like MBank account or something. Is that the future? I think this is the future. And and you know what? My favorite saying about uh, you know the world of cryptocurrency right now um, is that the future is already here, just not where we are. And it's funny because you know when when you're in Canada or even worse if you're in the U.S. Um, you know, you think this is crazy. You know, in the U in the U.S., they still use checks for everything. Um, you know, if you're in a place like China, only tourists carry cash. Um, everyone else uses, uh, you know, WeChat, and they use it for for their all of their payments as well. And they've been using it for for a decade. Now, um, my trips recently have taken me to uh, to Turkey and to Brazil, and in both of these places, where we where we see uh, crypto adoption rates reach uh, as high as thirty percent, I've seen people that actually do not use the traditional banking system anymore. They only use this nascent crypto system um, and some of these you know people are just amazed how they lived without it i've, I've spoken in brazil to uh, taxi drivers who have driven a cab their entire life they've never qualified for a bank account uh, because their business is primarily in cash and so they've been excluded and now they can actually use these Bitcoin ATMs to, you know, like deposit. So it's not like they're keeping cash, you know, in their mattresses anymore. They can actually exchange it into something. And if they need to access that money, they can also do it. They can send money to relatives. It's no longer just, you know, like being an unbanked person that never has access to any form of, uh, you know, electronic uh, system. But, uh, you know, they're actually able to use a system that's designed for people like them. And, uh, and crypto is taking off like wildfire through the unbanked countries like, you know, certain countries of Africa or Brazil or Turkey, just not believing in the traditional ecosystem or the traditional establishment never reach them. It preferred to exclude them. So are we going to be the slowest in this development? Like the, we, the people who live in, in those relatively safe banking environments like Canada, maybe? Are we going to be at the very end of this whole line? I don't think we'll be at the very end because uh, Canada is known for its fintech, um, uh, you know, prowess. Um, so there's a lot of uh, interesting developments right now happening in Canada in both crypto, but also open banking right now is becoming a really, really big thing. So the idea of you being able to easily access um, your own financial information and to move accounts from one bank to another, that's coming soon, hopefully. So I think Canada will actually be ahead of the US, um, but you know we're still going to be behind um, Europe and Asia. Well, you're very excited about this, right? When I met you at one of the functions, you said, there's this new stuff coming, a real revolution. Is that what it is? 100%. I, I am supremely excited about where this is going. I think this is not very different from, you know, from the other revolutions, the industrial revolution. Um, I mean, that changed the world. Then the internet changed the world. And uh, really right now, um, blockchain is starting to change the, you know, the shape of data and information once again. And uh, yeah, I don't think we'll recognize um, this place when this revolution is done. Well, the only thing I can wish you is that you make a lot of Bitcoin every week. I don't know how <laughs> many, but lots. And uh, that I think kids should be taught about this, are they? You know what? That is a fantastic thing you bring up. I'm actually a fervent believer in, in STEM-based learning for kids. Um, not to say that we should ever step away from humanities because, uh, you know, much of the automation efforts right now in the world are going to remove a lot of jobs 
um, from the equation. And I think, you know, having a background in humanities is actually going to help with the few remaining jobs that are left due to creativity. But for the uh, for the time being, STEM-based learning and staying really ahead of the curve. And like you said, you know, teaching kids about Bitcoin right now should be something that's a top of uh, agenda for any minister of education. Uh, kids are starting to learn to code a bit earlier and really to get into um, blockchain, you do need some um, preliminary coding skills. So I hope that in the next uh, year to two, we'll see kids go crazy at it and, you know, start putting their toys on blockchain and whatnot. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's an exciting time for sure. To learn more about all these fascinating things that Tomek Jankowski explained so clearly, please visit our website, mypodcast.com. Smachnego. We're here talking about our love for eating Polish. My name is Peter. And my name is Laura. And we wrote two heritage Polish cookbooks called Polish Classic Recipes and Polish Classic Desserts where all the recipes have been handed down from previous generations. But updated for modern kitchens, so no more pinch of this or a glass of that. Apples used to be a fruit for the fall, but these days they're in the grocery store all year round. We always have some around for a quick and delicious snack. Today, we want to share with you an incredibly flavorful way of using apples for dessert in a healthier way than donuts, potato chips, or fried Twinkies. Stuffed baked apples are a real treat that I grew up with. My mom made them a lot because she didn't like to bake. Strange for a cookbook writer, right? You'll need six medium apples. Any crisp variety will do as long as they're not tart. Then you'll need some honey, chopped walnuts, graham cracker crumbs, butter, and two tablespoons of orange juice. Or if you prefer an adult version like me, I'd forget the juice and substitute a nice orange liqueur or brandy and a bit of orange zest for a nice kick. Preheat your oven to 375 degrees Fahrenheit or 190 degrees Celsius. Make your stuffing by mixing the honey with the walnuts, cracker crumbs, and the juice or liqueur and zest. Cut the tops off the apples and set them aside. Pour the apples to remove the seeds, fill the holes with the stuffing, and then top off with a pat of butter and put back the apple tops like a lid. Place them close to each other in a baking dish and bake. After an hour, take them out of the oven and let them rest a bit, but they're best served warm. I always thought a scoop of vanilla ice cream or a drizzle of the orange liqueur would take it to the next level but some might think that's over the top, or not. Our second dessert, a beautiful apple mousse, only takes 10 minutes and is especially helpful for using up any leftover egg whites and using up all the applesauce you made after the last orchard trip. You'll need three egg whites, an envelope of plain gelatin, sugar, almond extract, two cups of applesauce, chopped almonds, and maybe some cinnamon. Dissolve the gelatin according to the package instructions and set it aside. Whip the egg whites until stiff. Add the sugar, the almond extract. Slowly mix in the gelatin. Fold in the applesauce gently and voila, you have a lovely tasty mousse. We like to spoon the mousse into sherbet glasses and sprinkle them with chopped almonds or dust them with the cinnamon. Chill your dessert completely before serving. You can make this in just a few minutes before starting dinner, and everyone will love you for it. The full recipe for these dishes and the information about our heritage cookbooks is on our website, www.polishclassiccooking.com. Just scroll down to the article posted on September 4, 2013. Smacznego! Interesting that your mom didn't like baking. Oh, she didn't like cooking. What do you mean she didn't like cooking? She was a she journalist. Didn't. She used to write for several Polish magazines. What's the big Polish magazine out of Toronto? Zwiąskowia. She was a columnist in there, and she was a columnist in a, in a magazine out of Chicago, and uh, a couple other. 
the only reason she wrote a cookbook was because she wanted to make some money. So she never actually tried out those recipes. Oh no, no she, she tried. Did. She tried most of them, but it, it was a long. It was a long process. You know, her book it was published in 1968, and we just got a royalty check. You know, when in today's mail, you know, for that book, still many editions. See, I have a copy right here. Looking inside the front cover, it was two different publishers, first Doubleday and then Pelican. It doesn't tell how many Doubleday editions there were, but it just says first Pelican, second Pelican. I know she's sold way over 25,000 copies. Considering that the average shelf life of a cookbook is six months, that's, that's pretty good. And even ours after 10 years, or the first one's 10 years old now, it's doing very well. We just we just got the biggest royalty check ever. Congratulations. That's incredible. But at least in your case, right? You guys really like cooking and you cook. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I like your mom. She cooked, but it wasn't her favorite thing to do. But she preferred to cook or to bake? Uh, cook. I, I, I would say cook. Yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> How long has she been gone? Um, close to 15 years. Yeah. She was a journalist, and that was her profession, and that was her avocation. And uh, she went to Sorbonne, studied journalism. Yeah, it was. Uh, she had a pretty interesting background. What did she write about when you say she was a columnist? Was it like political or social you know, issues? So social, family issues. You know, a lot of it was you know how to get along and in, in in the new world. Specifically targeted to life as an immigrant. She did a lot of columns on holidays, too. Yeah, traditions. traditions. What was her first name? Alina. Alina Zerańska. Zerańska. Zerańska, sure. <laughs> what was the title of that cookbook she did? The Art of Polish Cooking. So it's still available somewhere. You get it on Amazon. You can get it several different uh, online booksellers. You can get it through some Polish book sites. Available in a lot of different sources. Sixty years. I mean, geez. That's not six months, right? <laughs> we just, in fact, a friend just sent us an article that was published over Easter in a USA small town that had Easter traditions and recipes out of her book. Just they just used it as a source material this year for Easter. I was blown away with that. <laughs> And since we have talked today about money, Polcast and I need your financial support. Not in Bitcoin, necessarily. The crowdfunding campaign is continuing, although it had mysteriously crashed at some point and had to be started from scratch. Thank you so much to those who renewed their pledge. Like all other podcasts, this one counts and depends on its listeners. What is free for you to listen to is not free for me to make. Would you take me out for a coffee or donut once a month? Or maybe lunch? If you would, but cannot because we're too far apart, please support Paulcast with the equivalent of that. Go to mypolcast.com support and make a pledge. All the information about this is on Paulcast website, mypolcast.com. For a lot of additional information, multimedia links, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. And while you're there, please share your comments, your reactions, and suggest ideas. If you know of any interesting story that we should cover on our podcast, please let me know. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. And do not forget to rate this episode on your favorite podcast app. And I'm leaving you with a piece of the beautiful soundtrack from the powerful film The Last Witness, which you heard about in this episode and which is a must-see. Mm-hmm.